Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Um, it's been a, been a great week. If you've been praying for me with my wife being gone, I appreciate it. We had a great week at home. Uh, I am a little discouraged. My discipleship um, stamina is being tested in the sense that I've already heard, and this is just, I've, I, this is not true, this is not the sum total yet, but I've already heard of three high school seniors in our church that are going to the University of Florida next year and found that out this week. <laughs> so, I don't know what's happening. I guess I need to repent of being a poor leader. But we rejoice with those families who heard that news this week. Uh, that, I know that that's tremendous. I saw um, one family in particular, uh, the Reynolds, at the baseball field, and they all were wearing that gaudy orange and blue. And I thought, what in the world is going on? And they said, well, we got good news today. So uh, we rejoice with you. Also, I would make you aware, because it is true of our, um, of our church body, uh, Maddie. Uh, this is Maddie's last Sunday with us before he prepares to go off for the season this year. So make sure to say hello and goodbye to him today. And uh, we're always sad to see them go, and so we pray for October to come quickly. And we thank God that he's playing for the Pirates, and that means they won't be in the, they won't be in the postseason this year, and they'll be home sooner. <laughs> where's, my, where's my faith? Well, let's just put it this way, Matt. If you can get them to the postseason, you're worth more than they're paying you. So we look forward to that. Uh, we are in the middle of a series uh, on the passion of Jesus, his journey to the cross. And we've been looking at this for a number of weeks, and we'll continue to do so all the way to Easter. So we're, we're at a particular, particularly scathing passage, which is really, honestly, difficult uh, to read. It makes me kind of shake even as I read it, and probably should make a lot of us shake as we read it together. So we're going to do that from Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 13, going to verse 33. It's printed for you in your worship folder. It'll be on the screen Behind me as well. This is uh, referred to as the seven woes of Jesus to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. So you'll hear him say, woe to you, seven times. Okay, let's read. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And if you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? This is God's word. Like I said, a cheery passage this morning. If you're not here last week, we talked about how Jesus is giving the Pharisees a failing grade because though they were very committed to holiness, they don't love people well. And the big idea we explored is that religion, kind of exemplified in the Pharisees and the scribes, religion doesn't make people more loving because in order to love, you have to, you have to disappear. You have to be stripped of your self-love and self-concern, and religion doesn't do that. In fact, it does the exact opposite. It increases self-concern, and so only the gospel can make you a loving person. Now, tomorrow's Valentine's Day, uh, and so we've taken all of the Valentine's Day decorations and books and stuff out of the attic, and we've been reading those books to our kids. And one of the books in particular that I found myself reading a lot last week to my kids is a book called Somebody Loves You, Mr. Hatch. And I don't know if, you've, if you're familiar with it. It's a great book. You ought to read it, especially if you have kids. But it's a story of a man who goes throughout his life, day after day, doing the same thing. He's lonely and sad and reserved. He barely, he barely even speaks to the people that he comes across in his daily life. Uh, he, you know, the people he works with and his neighbors. Until one Valentine's Day, he receives a heart-shaped box of chocolates with a note that simply says, somebody loves you. He has no idea who the note has come from or who his secret admirer might be, but just the thought that somebody, and it doesn't really even matter who to him, but just that somebody loves him, so energizes him that he gets out of the rut he's been stuck in, he begins to live differently. Most importantly, knowing that he's loved makes him kinder, makes him more generous. He begins to help his neighbors in their time of need. He bakes brownies and throws a party in his backyard and plays the harmonica, and everybody starts to dance. His life is completely transformed just by the knowledge that he's loved, that is, until the day the postman comes and knocks on his door and tells him that the heart-shaped box of chocolates was meant to go to somebody else's house, and he's so dejected by the news that he goes back to his old way of living, but something's happened. His coworkers and friends and neighbors miss the person that he's become, and when they find out the reason why he's gone back to being dejected and reserved, they throw a big party for him, and they stand out in his front yard on a Saturday morning, and they make a sign, and the sign reads, Everybody loves Mr. Hatch. And the book ends with the line, Mr. Hatch dabbed at a tear with his handkerchief. I do believe, he sniffed, somebody loves me after all. And then he smiled, and then he laughed, and then he hurried down to be with his friends. And the point of the story And the point I was trying to make last week is that the energy to love comes from knowing that there is, there is somebody who loves you. The most important somebody in the universe, in fact, and only when you really believe in his love and come to accept it and experience it 
in the innermost parts of your life, will your life be drained of the self-love and the self-concern that, that, that keep you from being a loving person? You can become radically generous. You can be kind to people. You can, like Mr. Hatch, you can you know, play the harmonica and invite people over for brownies and, and just go through life dancing instead of in this little rut of despair. You can disappear. You can become less important. And you see, my job today and every time I stand up here or Jonathan or whoever it might be, my job is to speak into the circumstances of our lives the truth into all the doubts and all the confusion and all the sadness, the truth that God has broken into human time and space in the person of Jesus, and that's changed everything. And that's what we refer to as the gospel, that Jesus came to live a life of obedience, suffering, and service, and to die the painful, shameful death of the cross so that God could embrace us and bring us into his family and call us his children. And as the consequence of this, if you're here this morning and you're like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable in Luke 15, if you're a, a bad boy, if you've been a bad boy or a bad girl, right? if you've lived your whole life with little regard for the rules, if you've done your own, whole, your own thing your whole life, the truth of the gospel is that if you repent of all you're seeking for happiness apart from him and come to him, then he will open his arms to you and he will embrace you because he loves you. But if you're here and you're more like the elder brother in that story, you're a good boy or you've been a good girl, hardworking, dutiful, moral, but resentful, unforgiving, and angry. If you will repent of your righteousness and come to him, then he will receive you as well. He will open his arms to you and he will embrace you because he loves you. You see, Jesus loves sinners, the irreligious type and the religious type. And that's important to note, or we'll miss what's really happening here in this passage, because, let me say, the new self-righteousness is to be self-righteous about self-righteousness. Right? To hate self-righteous, hate religious people. I was reading an article in GQ uh, online uh, that I just was pointed to by a blog that I read about, about an article they did about Teg Haggart, who you might remember was the, the president of the Evangelical Society in America who came out, was soliciting homosexual prostitutes and some other things and really kind of fell from grace. And he, in that article, he made a passing statement that I thought was profound. He said uh, to this interviewer, he said, Jesus, you know, loved, every, loved everybody except self-righteous people. And I would like to kindly disagree and say, no, Jesus perfectly loved everybody, even religious self-righteous people. Jesus loved prostitutes and tax collectors and he loved the Pharisees and the religious leaders and longed for them to repent and believe in him. And that's what he's doing here. He's loving these people. This is a series of seven woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And the woe is, is a, strong, it's a strong statement. It's a verdict. But it's, it's a verdict. It's a condemnation that also expresses regret and compassion. It is, I like this way of saying it, it is a compassionate warning. It's a confrontation, but it has the tone of sadness and hostility, not anger. Jesus, is, Jesus doesn't hate the Pharisees. He loves them deeply, and he longs to see them repent. And that's what he's trying to get them to do, and that's what he wants us to do as well as we come to this passage. So we're going to have to be ready to repent well this morning. Now, three things we want to see from this passage, and that's just this. We want to really look for a few minutes at the core issue that Jesus is getting at. 
I'm, I'm imposing my own structure upon a passage of Scripture that has a very clear structure in seven woes. I'm breaking every rule that they tell you to do in seminary when you preach. But we're going to do it this way. The first two woes really contain kind of the core issue. What's the core issue Jesus is after? The remainder of the woes really kind of fall out as warning signs by which you can, you can kind of diagnose your own heart to see if what is true of these people is true of you as well. And then thirdly, we're going to see how our hearts can get healed by the gospel in order to avoid the same condemnation of the Pharisees. So those are the three. Core issue, warning signs, and then the cure. So let's walk through this passage that way, just looking at these things. Okay, beginning with the core issue. I want to say it this way. If you look there at those first verses of the first two woes, verse 13 and 14 and 15, there's a difference between being a Christian and being religious. There's lots of people who have been in church all their lives who are very committed and very nice and very moral and they look really great on the outside, but who are trusting in their niceness and their morality and their goodness to get to heaven. They're trusting in themselves, not in Christ. They're trusting in their, mor- their, their hope is in their moral record, their performance. So the line from Flannery O'Connor, it's become kind of famous, is the best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. Because if you don't sin, you don't need him. I mean, that's, that's these guys. That's religion, not Christianity. Religion, let me put it this way, and this is going to become important. Religion says good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. And this is something we're going to come back to over and over again, and it's completely infiltrated our culture. This is the dominant, prevailing view, typically both of people in the church and out of the church in our culture, and you see it everywhere. I've been accused from time to time of watching the Oxygen Channel, which I flatly deny to be the case. However, I was flipping through the channels the other night, or I, can't, or I left the room to check on somebody in bed and came back, and uh, the, the, old, the old movie that when I was, I forget how old I was, but Ghost, the Patrick Swayze movie Ghost, you know, which again is an Oxygen Channel movie, and I promise I only looked at it for about 30 seconds, but in those 30 seconds, so Kaylee Henderson, you don't have to confront me after the service is over and tell me I'm a woman, okay? In those 30 seconds, it's the scene, if you remember the movie, where, where um, Patrick Swayze's character has died, and then there's, um, um, oh, geez, Whoopi Goldberg's character is this, she's, uh, she's a fake um, palm reader, and, and she's just a complete fake. But anyway, he gets her to the, to the bank, and he figures out that there's a bank account that, that the person who killed him has been laundering money into, and they get the money out, and she's got the check, and she realizes it's $4 million dollars. And he's finally talked her into getting rid of the check so they can't trace it back to her so that she can go away and people won't be after her and try to kill her too. And the way he does it is there's some nuns over on the street and they're, they're made, you know, a collection for whatever project they're doing. And he tells her, you know, you need to give it to them. And she says, it's $4 million. I can't, how in the world can I possibly? And she's literally holding on to the check, you know, and she can't even let go of it because it's $4 million. And, and his reasoning, what finally gets her over the edge is he says, just look at it this way. At least you'll go to heaven. Right Now here's a lady who for a living deceives people and takes their money. But, but, but the idea is through one, act, you know, good pe- through one act of goodness or kindness, you kind of, that you punch your ticket to heaven. I thought, wow, that's powerful. And so what we see is it's possible to be inside the whole Christian subculture in this country and to still be operating in a religious construct. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. 
because religion and the gospel are two different things. You can be religious, you can be in the church and have been there all your life and be very committed and be just as lost as someone who wants nothing to do with Jesus or the church. That's a very dangerous place to be. I mean, your soul's in danger. You can mistake religion for Christianity, and Jesus is helping us distinguish between the two. And these first two woes, verses 13 through 15, Jesus warns that if you bring people into this sort of religious construct, you're actually, look there, you're actually shutting them out of the kingdom of heaven. And that word shut in those verses has the same Greek word as the word key. The metaphor literally means you're locking the door, you're turning the lock, you're throwing away the key to keep people out. He goes on in verse 15, he says, if you disciple people in religion, you make them, look at this phrase, twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Holy smokes. I mean, how is that possible? I mean, how, what, is he, how, what is he saying? How could he possibly mean that? I mean, in Jesus' words, it would have been incredibly offensive and also very confusing to everybody listening to him because everybody would have said that the Pharisees, of all people, were the most likely candidates to get into heaven. I mean, their name meant separated. I mean, they were a cut above everybody else. They were the most committed. They were the most exacting in their obedience, and yet Jesus calls them children of hell. And he says that their disciples aren't closer to heaven by converting to their religion. They're farther away than they were before. I mean, that's what he means by twice as much a child of hell. Now, let me break this down for us. There are Christians... There are irreligious pagan people, and then there are religious people. And Jesus is saying that somebody who doesn't want anything to do with God is closer to heaven than a person who's in the church but still operating in a religious construct. Earlier in Matthew, Jesus said it this way to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He said, the tax collectors and the prostitutes get into the kingdom ahead of you. I mean, what's going on? Now, let me apply this for just a minute. And a lot of us here are parents, and so just allow me this application to parenting. And I want to say to parents, parents, our goal in the parenting of our children should not be and is not to raise children who don't need a Savior. The goal of parenting is to not to raise kids who do everything perfectly and never sin. Because if that's your goal, can I just go ahead and tell you, you're going to fail. And you're going, to, you're going to crush them in the process, and you're going to crush yourself. The goal of parenting is to raise children who rejoice in Jesus as their Savior and who are good repenters. You see the difference? Because the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of grace. I mean, you get in by grace, not works. In other words, by resting in Jesus' works, not by your own works, but the Pharisees were all about their own works. They were trying to achieve a righteousness of their own that would merit them the love and favor of God. They were in a performance-based religion. Follow the rules, do the right thing. Good people go to heaven. And Jesus is saying it doesn't work that way. The only way to get to heaven is to know you have nothing and that you've done nothing that could ever merit you standing with God. And that's why the tax collectors and the sinners get in ahead of the Pharisees because the Pharisees, hear me, the Pharisees still believe they're good enough. They're just good enough. They, they follow the rules just enough that they still believe their morality is merit. But the tax collectors and prostitutes know for sure that they, are, they have no hope. No hope except that Jesus saves sinners. And so the children of hell that Jesus is talking about here are people who are willingly rebelling against God 
And there are two ways that you can do that. You can do it by breaking all the rules and setting your own course, or you can do it by seeking to put God in your debt and to get control over him through good works instead of relying on his grace. You can be a child of hell by being very, very bad. You can be a child of hell by trying and putting your hope in being very, very good. That's the core issue. That's the root of all the other problems. And so how do you know if you're still inside this religious construct I'm trying to describe? And in the other five woes, Jesus gives us four warning signs, four evidences that the gospel hasn't really come home to the heart, that the heart's still operating in this works, what I'm going to call a works righteousness system. They are these, manipulation, perfectionism, externalism, and self-justification. So we, gotta, we don't have a lot of time, you know, we've got to kind of, I'm going to unsatisfactorily not deal with all of the specifics here, but we're going to look at those four. So let's take a look at each one, okay? First, manipulation. First, the first warning sign that you're still operating in a religious works righteousness construct is uh, manipulation. Now, these verses here in verse 16 through 22 are very, very difficult to understand, really. I mean, what's the difference between swearing by the temple or swearing by the gold on the temple? What in the world is all of this, you know, have to do with anything? And I think, excuse me, there's a deeper issue that Jesus is getting at. And it's just this, the Pharisees are responsible for the temple, which loomed very large in the imagination of the people of that day. And so with that responsibility came a certain power and authority. And Jesus' condemnation of them in these verses is over how they're leveraging the currency of power they have in the lives of the people that they are, are in authority over. Remember last week, okay, he told them, you're shutting, you're, you're, excuse me, you're, you're tying up heavy loads, and weighing people down with them. That was Jesus' kind of critique of them. In other words, they're trying, they're trying to play the role of God in other people's lives. They're trying to rule over the consciences of other people. And distinguishing between the temple and the gold of the temple and the altar and the gift on the altar and doing all these kinds of things is kind of the same deal. They're leveraging their currency of power over the, the emotional, you know, spiritual lives of the people that are under them, not for God's agenda, and not for the good of those people, but for their own selfish purposes. There are all kinds of currencies of power, connections and relationships and time and money. Parents have a currency of power over their children, don't they? Their approval. I mean, every kid is hungry for the approval of his mom and his dad. Even 35-year-old kids are. Teenage girls, listen, you have a currency of power. Your body. There are all kinds of currencies of power. It's a currency of power. And so what Jesus is asking and what he's hoping to get, kind of get us to look at is, are you using whatever currency of power you have to bless people and to serve them, or are you using it to manipulate people and bend their will to yours? This is the warning sign. This is a warning sign that you're still operating in a works righteousness system, and here's why. A manipulative, a manipulative mother-in-law, I mean a manipulative person, right? I'm <laughs> just, Sorry. I was like, maybe I can get a laugh there. That would be funny. And we laugh because we've experienced it. A manipulative person. What we don't don't often see is that that person who's being manipulative is coming from a place of need. There's an inner emptiness and insecurity that's at the heart of their life. And that's why they're trying to manipulate. They're They're trying to use whatever they have to to fill up the inner emptiness of their life. And if you're still operating in a religious construct, then at the center of your life, there's insecurity. You're not really sure God is for you. You're not really sure. You're, at the end of the day, you can't be sure he loves you. And so 
out of that insecurity, you're going to use whatever currencies of power you have to try to control other people to deal with the fear and the insecurity you feel. And if you're still being driven by an inner emptiness, and if you're using whatever power currencies you have to manipulate people to deal with that inner emptiness, then that means the gospel's not taken root in you yet. You might be religious, Jesus is saying, but you're not a Christian yet. Warning sign number two. I told you we got to go quick. Perfectionism. And I don't really, that's probably not the best word, but, but by that I mean just this, that here, a warning sign is if you begin to major on the minors and consequently minor on the majors. Look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now the Pharisees, I mean, get the picture in your mind. The Pharisees are incredibly exacting in their obedience, right? They go out into their gardens I mean, if you've ever had a garden, can you imagine this? Going out into your garden, and they take the leaves of the, the mint, you know, plant, and they, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. One, two, three, four. And they, they take the time to go out and, and meticulously count the number of leaves on the little herb plants to make sure that they get the tithe right. They, they're about following the rules to the tiniest detail. They want, they want there to be no gray areas. Everything black. And why? And I get it because I'm a perfectionist, maybe with some slight OCD tendencies. Right? I, I mean, I totally understand. Yeah, Ashley's shaking her head in the front row. Thank you. And so this, this is the second warning sign Jesus is saying, that you might still be operating in your works righteousness system. Because if you think that following the rules is what gains you God's love and approval, then following the rules will become the most important thing in your life. Even more important than justice and mercy and faithfulness. You'll want checklists and protocols and rules and guidelines. I love those things. For everything that clearly spell out what's right and what's wrong. So you can make sure, you can make sure you're right and not wrong. Just tell me what the right thing is. Right? I just want to know what the right thing to do is because I'll do it. What's right and what's wrong. And if you're most concerned... What Jesus is saying, if you're most concerned about doing the right thing, you're going to fail in the work of loving other people. Because the reality is, the work of doing justice and mercy and faithfulness is just messy. That word justice means to correct oppression, right? To find out where people are being taken advantage of and to correct it. The word mercy means to show compassion to those who are hurting and in need. And then the word faithfulness, I love, I love that Jesus includes that. Really, it just means to be a good friend, to be kind. And if you put yourself to that work, you know it's hard. That's hard. It requires a lot of wisdom. It's not always clear what's right and what's wrong. And so the, the most important thing Jesus is saying is not that you can produce records that show you've given 10% of your money down to the tiniest penny. Jesus says, do that. That's great. But don't think that's the most important thing. The most important thing is that you use whatever money and influence you have to care for the poor and the needy and the hurting and to be a good friend. And so therefore what Jesus is saying yet again is that the clear warning sign of being religious is being a rule follower and at the same time a terrible lover of people. We, some of the guys that are in officer training, we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago where we, we uh, it's kind of before my time, but some of the men that are a little older than me were talking about Remembering the time when you would go to Sunday school at church, and the first thing you would do in Sunday school is they would hand you a card about how you performed this past week that says, you know, you have to check off the boxes. Did you read your Bible this week? Check. Right? Did you bring your tithe to church with you this morning? Check. 
Were you dressed appropriately? Check. You know, Terry laughed and said, there should have been a little check that says, did you lie about anything on this form? (laughs) Right? Because if that was there, everybody's failing. But what's amazing is, what's amazing is, is as you think about even that thing, the checklists never included, who were you kind to this week? Who were you a good friend to this week? See, those kinds of things that make the checklists, and that's a warning sign. You may, may be religious, but you're not a Christian. Third one, externalism. Externalism. In other words, defining Christianity as doing rather than being. Jesus says in verses 25 through 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside. And this is a strategy that I have in cleaning the dishes that Ashley won't let me get away with often because it doesn't do any good to clean the outside, right? Because you eat on the inside. You clean the outside of the plate and cup, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So a clear warning sign that you're still operating in a works righteousness system is that you think of righteousness or you think of holiness only in terms of externals. In other words, holiness, the categories for righteousness and holiness are behavioral and not motivational. You spend all of your time cleaning the outside of the cup, but ignoring uh, the inner realities of the heart. And Jesus has some things to say about this. Earlier to the Pharisees in Matthew, he says, you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. There's outward moral conformity, right? But no inner spiritual reality. Going through the motions of the Christian life, but no joy and peace. You sing the songs on Sunday morning, but they're just words. There's no feelings. There's no affections. Everything looks good on the outside, but inside you're just dead. There's nothing in there. There's no spiritual reality there. And Jesus says this is a warning sign that you might still be operating in a works righteousness framework too. Because if you believe you're loved and accepted because of your performance, then clearly, clearly one of the strategies we can always kind of fall back to is that you try to make the standard of your performance that is required of you doable. And so... Just a, an illustration, I was with a pastor a couple weeks ago, his name's Ray Cortez, he's in our denomination, he's up near the Crystal River area, and he told the story of a lady who came to their church and wanted to become a member, uh, but they had a big problem, she was living with her boyfriend, and uh, she lo- she, he said what was troubling was is she loved Jesus, and I realized she loved Jesus more than me, and more than most of the people in our church, but she had this issue, she was living with her boyfriend, and I realized we can't bring her into membership in this church because of this sin in her life. And then I began to realize and look out and see, man, you know, most of the people and most of the elders and most of the leadership in this church are captivated by greed and self-righteousness and arrogance. And they're not only members, they're officers. And here's this lady who's humble, who loves Jesus. And because she has this area of sin, I can't bring her in, and so they worked to get them married and then brought her into the church, but you know, it made me start to think, you know, we have laws in our society against murder and stealing, but can you imagine if we, if the legislature took up to pass a law against joylessness? The jails aren't big enough. Can you imagine a law, get ready, against anxiety? I mean, why don't we have laws like that? Yeah, because we know the, the law can't change the heart. 
We got people in the church, we get on to people. You know, the church loves to get on to people about pornography or divorce or the big technicolor sins, but we tend to overlook things like rudeness and impatience. Greed. Those are acceptable sins. Why? Why is that? It's externalism. Just avoid the big stuff. Just look nice on the outside. What Jesus is teaching is that a true experience of grace not only transforms the external parts of your lives, but it's going to come and it's going to begin to transform the inner part of your life too. There are three inner realities he points to that I think are important here. In verse 25 he says, you can be inwardly full of greed and self-indulgence. Do you see that? And then verse 28 he uses the word lawlessness. The word greed refers to strong desire. Strong desire to gain things even by violence, to rob and to plunder, to take from people who are weaker than you. Self-indulgence just means what it sounds, it means a lack of self-control. It means there's no self-restraint. You're being overrun by your desires. You're completely out of control internally. And then that word lawlessness literally means no law. It means to be a law unto yourself or to desire to rule yourself or to think, you know, the rules don't apply to me. Jesus' point is that religion can make you look good outwardly. It can morally constrain your heart but it can't cut into your greed and self-indulgence. It might be able to produce an outward conformity to the rules, but it can't overcome the lawlessness of the heart. Only the gospel can do that. So warning sign. Warning sign number four. Self-justification, verses 29 through 33. And in these verses, Jesus points out how they build tombs for the prophets which were persecuted by the previous generation, saying if we were alive, we would have not done what they did. Now, there's great irony, great irony in what they say here. They claim that had they been there, they would not have killed the prophets, but in two days, they're the ones who are going to kill the one who sent the prophets. God himself. So they have a very high opinion of themselves and a very low opinion of everybody else. And that's what I mean by self-justification. I'm always right, and everyone else is always wrong. Uh, I'm never suspicious of myself, but highly suspicious of everybody else. And this can kind of work its way out in a couple of strategies in your life, okay? It can work its way out, this, this sense of self-justification and boasting. In other words, in taking every opportunity that you can to make sure everybody knows how great you are. In defending yourself, protecting your righteousness against the accusations of others, or in criticizing others or gossiping about them or building up your righteousness by tearing others down. Now this too, Jesus says is a warning sign that you still might be operating in a works righteousness system. If you believe that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, then you'll need to constantly be proving that you're one of the good people. And the only way to do that is to prove your superiority and to point out other people's flaws. This self-justification, and that's the fourth warning sign Jesus gives that you might be religious but not yet a Christian. Now, So there's the core issue, and there's the warning signs. But before we just blow by this, let me come to the cure. And I want you to really see what's at stake here. So look at verse 33 carefully with me for just a minute. And Jesus' final questions in the last words of the portion of this passage that I chose, he asks these religious people, how then are you to escape being sentenced to hell? I mean, do you hear that? They are in danger of hell. I mean, can you imagine how shocking that it would have sounded? If you're, not, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I know this, 
this, this has got to be kind of confusing to you, but we believe there's coming a day where we will stand before God and he will judge us and he will either pass a sentence of condemnation upon us and what awaits those who are condemned on that day is the reality of hell, eternal suffering and torment apart from God for all forever and ever and ever, or to be rewarded with eternal life in heaven. And these people, he's saying these good, moral, dutiful, committed people are in danger of hell. Can you imagine how shocking that would have sounded? Of all of the people in the crowd, they would have been seen as the most likely candidates for heaven. They were the cleanest. They had the best resume. So what in the world? And let me ask you, so how would you answer that question? I mean, life and death hang in the balance of that question. And I want you to see that the impulse of every heart in this room, when that question is posed to it, is to provide some sort of case, to make a case, to provide some sort of defense, to pull out your spiritual portfolio and to make a case as to why you should get in. And if that's your strategy, Jesus is saying it won't work. It's not going to get you anywhere. No amount of evidence will ever gain you access. There's only one way to escape the sentence of hell. Are you ready? And that's to plead guilty. And that's why the Pharisees and all those who are still caught up in their works righteousness system are in such danger. Because if you think your acceptance with God is based upon your performance, then the one thing you can't ever do, you'll never be able to do, is to plead guilty. And yet Jesus says the only way to escape the sentence of hell, this is what the Bible teaches, is to plead guilty. So how do you do that? How in the world do you do that? And the answer is just this, that you have to see that the sentence has already been carried out. That the reason we can plead guilty is because the sentence has already been executed and filled. That's the gospel. That Jesus loved perfectly. That he is the one who truly loved God with all of his heart and mind and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. And yet, he, at the end of his life, was found guilty and condemned to die. And in 1 Corinthians 5.21, Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says, He who knew no sin became sin for us. You see, you hear that. Jesus, in other words, went to the cross to fulfill our sentence, which was death and hell. And on the cross, the gavel of God came down, and the judge pronounced with a thunderous, guilty. And Jesus, who was innocent, was declared guilty and punished so that we who are guilty and deserve to be punished could be declared innocent. And that's the cure. That's the cure. Somebody loves you. And that somebody went to greater lengths than any lover has in the history of love stories to prove his love for you. And the more you come to see that, right, the more we center our lives on that, the more it becomes real to us, the more we, it comes into our life and we begin to rejoice in it and we see that our love and our approval and our acceptance are not based upon our performance, they're based upon the work of Jesus in our place. The more that begins to come home, well, then the more free we'll be to use our currencies of power to bless and to serve. You know, we won't have to constantly be propping ourselves up and burying other people with criticism. We won't have to do that anymore. Because the gospel can come and can cure us of our self-concern and our self-orientation, and the result will be that we will not have a failing grade. We will indeed become people who can really begin to love. That's the cure. You see that? That's the cure. Plead guilty. And how in the world do you find the strength and the courage to plead guilty? There's somebody who loves you. Let that truth come into your life.
And it'll powerfully, it'll powerfully transform not just the way you live externally, it'll come into the very core of your being and begin to change you, as we sang earlier, from the inside out. There's somebody who loves you. Think about that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you come now in the song we're about to sing, and would you confirm to us the truth of what we've just seen from your scriptures as we're invited? I mean, just think, I just think, think of who's invited. Come, ye sinners. Poor and needy, sick and sorrowful, wounded and poor. Those are the ones that you invite to come to yourself. And so may we sing this song uh, with great reality in our hearts and with great joy over the fact that, that the invitation goes out not to those who are fit and who consider themselves qualified, but to the unfit and the disqualified and those who've blown it and to the guilty. And so as we sing it, may we, may we boldly proclaim and pronounce, I'm guilty. But may we not despair because we know that you love sinners. And so we pray these things, that you might come to live in us, and to love through us, and to glorify yourself in the fruit that we bear. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Chances are you got caught, like me, somewhere in that passage. Maybe you were four for four. Who knows? Right? Uh, so don't make a defense. If that's true, don't. Don't try to console your heart with, you know, I'm, I'm really not. It's okay. I'm not really not that bad. Plead guilty and come to Jesus. Because the promise is, just the promise of this benediction, that if you come to him uh, saying, I'm guilty, help me. I need rescued. I need a savior. Then his arms are open to you to receive you. But only those who confess that, only those who make that declaration are received. And so the promise of the benediction is just that, that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then no matter who you are, Religious or irreligious, no matter what your record might be, he stands ready to receive you with open arms. So I usually pronounce the benediction with my hands here, but today I'm going to do it like this. And if you ever wonder how open his arms are, they will nail to a cross. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Come to Jesus.